and we were standing there, you know, with probably 50 or more years of collective experience and, um, and ended up in a situation that we shouldn't have been in. Honestly, it's just such a different dynamic. It's just more of like a accepting sort of slow paced learning environment rather than like, okay, we got to charge, we got to do this, we got to get a, get up there as fast as you can. And so yeah, it just feels less intimidating. Finding mentorship in the winter sport has been the most difficulty because people are not patient with beginner and people who are slower XYZ because on a pow day, people are very individualistic, um, selfish because they wanna go ski that pow. They don't wanna wait. You're tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Don Baker. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. With additional sustaining support from Gordini, we keep you outside longer. And Open Snow. Visit opensnow.com to get started with a free trial and enter the discount code AVALANCHEPODCAST at checkout to receive 30% off your first year of Open Snow All Access. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge and news amongst people with a curious fascination for avalanches. And now for a word from the sponsor of this episode. SafeBack is a new entrant to the snow safety space, focused on making products that can delay asphyxia during burial in an avalanche or tree well without requiring a mouthpiece. After six years of R&D in Norway, their air supply system, SBX, is on the market as part of two avalanche backpacks. I've been testing the DB vest for the last couple of weeks during forecasting and teaching avalanche courses on my snow machine, and I've been impressed by the product's simplicity as an addition to the rest of my kit. I'm especially impressed by how light the entire vest feels when I'm wearing it. SBX has been evaluated by third parties throughout SafeBack's development and was most recently the subject of an independent medical trial to explore just how well their system works a study which is currently in the process of being published. If you want to dig a little deeper on SafeBack's tech and testing, you can go back and listen to my chat with William Sherman of SafeBack. It's episode 813. SafeBack has a pro form for anyone working in and around Avalanche Train. Apply today at safeback.no slash pro program or find the link on their Instagram page. Welcome back, folks, to the Avalanche Hour podcast. This episode is months in the making and was originally scheduled for release in late December. Unforeseen circumstances, namely a head injury, prevented me from getting this one ready in time. But good things come to those who wait, and I think this one is a banger. There are a few references to events that have now passed, but the spirit of the episode is a conversation worth having. How does mentorship build a stronger community and what does that look like in the snow and avalanche world? Let's dive in. If you've been tuned in for a while now, you know this podcast is all about building a stronger community. We strive to share the stories and experiences of a diverse selection of people passionately engaged in winter backcountry pursuits. We've shared stories of crusty career ski patrollers, 
veteran mountain guides, and longtime avalanche forecasters. We've spoken with folks who are early in their careers, sharing tales of their experiences and paths getting into the avalanche field. In past seasons, we've heard the unique experiences of women juggling the demands of motherhood with the unusual schedules and intensity of a career in the mountains. We've shared stories from folks not professionally involved in the mountains who've had the avalanche phenomenon thrust into their lives through tragic accidents, both at ski hills and even in an urban setting. If you haven't already listened to it, I highly recommend Caleb's episode 5.18 about the Mount Jumbo Avalanche, an event which impacted the rattlesnake neighborhood of Missoula, Montana. If you're listening to this episode, I bet you have at least a passing interest in snow and mountains, and likely a passionate love of shredding pow, whether on skis, a snowboard, or a snowmobile. Maybe at some point you've wondered how to get into backcountry travel. Maybe you found it hard to find people to get out with. It can be an intimidating pastime between the expensive gear and all the different skill sets that go along with it. You need to first be able to travel in the mountains to safely get home at the end of the day. Riding powder is one of those unique things that's pretty hard at first, but eventually becomes so much easier than riding the resort. There's a certain amount of mileage that a person needs before they can even start considering backcountry travel. Once you get to that point, there's companion rescue, avalanche terrain recognition, interpreting a public avalanche bulletin, setting a nice skin track, heck, even just doing a kick turn is awkward at first. So how does a person start out? There's plenty of photos and videos out there showing that deep powder turn on a sunlit slope, the silky slash to face shot in a grayscale winter forest, that snorkel-worthy downhill turn on a snowmobile. But how does a person get to that point? How does a person link up with more experienced folks to learn the skills to earn those turns? This episode is all about that connection and a few organizations helping to make it. Mountain towns around the world are full of kids with posters on their walls showing their favorite winter sport athletes. Social media has created this image that everybody is out there shredding the gnar and the kids want a piece of that. They see their local heroes at the ski hill putting down tracks in some pretty rad terrain, and these kids have the ski and snowboard skills to get after it. But what about avalanche safety? The Avalanche Awareness Beyond the Boundaries Society is a non-profit society formed to provide free or affordable avalanche skills training to youth between the ages of 13 to 18 in the Kootenay area of British Columbia. The AABBS was founded in the spring of 2009 by a group of Nelson ski industry and business professionals concerned about the increasing number of teens venturing into the backcountry without any avalanche and or mountain safety training. Here is a short conversation with Peter Moynes from the Avalanche Awareness Beyond the Boundaries Society. Great. Well, uh, today I'm joined by Peter Moynes from the Avalanche Awareness Beyond the Boundaries Society. Peter, thanks for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome, Dom. Thanks for having me. Oh, you bet, man. I'm uh, looking forward to hearing about the ABBS. I was wondering if you could just start by maybe telling us what the ABBS is and uh, how did it start? Yeah, you bet. Uh, yeah, ABBS was uh, founded in the spring of 2009 by a group of Nelson ski industry and business professionals concerned about the increase of the number of teens venturing into the backcountry without um, avalanche or mountain safety uh, training at all. So um, 
you know, around that time, kind of, you know, in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, you could see a lot of our community at the local ski hill, you know, a lot of kids really stoked to uh, be out there, stoked to be getting into the backcountry. And, um, but, you know, you could definitely tell that a lot of them, you know, they had the stoke, but they didn't have the training that, uh, you know, that, that they needed to, to be getting out into the backcountry. Um, so, yeah, a, a bunch of people started to chat about this idea of uh, starting a nonprofit society that would, um, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, educate youth in the, in the uh, in in backcountry safety. So um, it was also around this time that uh, we had a young skier in the area by the name of Travis Steger, and uh, he unfortunately passed in two thousand and nine. And so uh, Chris Steger, his father, really kind of took the reins uh, and starting a ABBS and um, so yeah we we, we formed it was um, oh myself and uh, this was sort of back in the day when Ann Pigeon was still with Whitewater and Kirk Jensen from Whitewater and um, a few other local um, community members and um, yeah basically we yeah, started it in 2009 and for the last gosh I guess it's well to, to date now, so 14 years or so, um, uh, we've been offering um, youth avalanche training for, for, you know, as I say, for the youth, uh, 15 to 18, or 14 to 18, or 14 to 18. Yeah, so, and about in over that time, I think we've had about uh, 500 youth go through the program, which we're really uh, pleased about. And uh, yeah, we we had some troubles during COVID. Uh, obviously, a lot of people did. It was hard to not only have the courses, but to raise money during that time. So um, we had a bit of a pause uh, last season, but um, yeah, we're we're back up and at them, and I believe we've got uh, three courses set up for uh, for the for the season this year. Oh, right on! That's great. Thanks for uh, telling me about that. And so, for folks that uh, maybe are unfamiliar with the Whitewater area, maybe you can just paint a little picture on like how easily it is to access the backcountry there. And these kids are just staring at. I call it Weimar TV because it's like the Weimar bowl big peak there, and you see all these people sending these big lines from the lift line and. Um, you know, the inspiration is there. It's the real deal. And you, see, you have these kids here watching that. So like, how do you see that from a kid's eyes? Well, yeah, I mean, exactly that. It's just, there's just so much that's beyond the boundaries, really. You know, it's it's all there. Um, you know, you can boot pack up to the ridge and get a far away pretty quick. So, um, you know, it just, yeah. And there was, there was just so much hype about it i mean even back then right we just basically had the summit chair and the silver king so you know on a pow day you would you know you'd be crossing a lot of tracks by noon you know so there that even that really um uh encouraged people to to get into the backcountry as well too you know they had all this fresh snow and you know people wanted to ski fresh lines so um yeah it, you know there's some areas in ski resorts where you know it just doesn't seem as accessible the the, the backcountry but as for anyone who has skied at whitewater uh before yeah as you call it weimer tv you can just see everything basically and you know pick lines from from any chairlift or any anywhere you're standing in the in the parking lot so um yeah it just it seemed like a, the 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 thing to do well as you said you had seen a crop of kids coming up with maybe without the gear and the training 
and I'm sure you could uh, see the potential for an accident there. So good for you guys for um, doing something positive about it. And having taught some of those AST courses myself, I definitely have seen that fire in their eyes. Uh, those kids, some of those kids are really driven and man, that's pretty high caliber of skier around the area too. So uh, it's, it's, it's good to be able to arm some of these kids with knowledge. Um, how, how did it go then last year with not being able to run courses? Like where did you get a sense of like kind of a missed, missed generation almost or? Uh, well, it, I mean, it's hard to get a, a, you know, a real sort of finger on the pulse there. I mean, we, we, we certainly realized we needed to, to get back this year and, and make it happen. So it, uh, you know, it was a bit of a, a, you know, a blip really in the sort of 14 year history or whatever. So, um, yeah, we just we just knew that we needed to get back at it. Um, and so for some of us on the board, that just basically really meant to uh, get get back to fundraising and stuff. So uh, back in the day, we used to uh, have our own uh, ski swaps and stuff, and it it took a lot of work. And um, you know, it, it I mean, it, it raised money, and we were able to to put on these courses. Um, thankfully, this year we uh, we were able to collaborate um, with Backroads uh, Brewing and had a had a bit of a fundraiser there uh, a few weeks ago now. And um, and then also thankfully. Uh, um, there's just so many uh, members of the community that are keen to support this type of thing. So we've been uh, able to garner some private donations and then also donations from some of the the um, the businesses in town, including Valhalla Pure and Ambler and uh, uh, the Nelson and District Credit Union as well, too. So there's been some great support uh, from the community as well. Right on. Well, that's, that is great to hear. Um, so this is a... a predominantly Nelson based location, but in the past you guys have taught courses at red. Do you see this being a need like in a lot of other communities that's being met or un unmet? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I actually, I thought we were the only ones, uh, but then we had applied for a grant um, through the, uh, through the CAA there or avalanche Canada. And um, yeah, basically there, there are others putting on courses in some of the other resorts uh, in Alberta. So, uh, you know, it, it um we had kind of left it that we would uh, connect in the new year and see if there might be ways that we might be able to collaborate uh with some of the other organizations um for now it's it's been yeah kind of whitewater and red centric um a lot of them the courses were actually f uh specifically for some of the outdoor programs as well too so um I, I'm not exactly sure where Atlas is right now, but uh, we also wanted to make sure if if Atlas uh, was unable to, uh, you know, be educating some of the youth in our area that we could we could we could do that. Um, so, yeah, yeah. And uh, for for the listeners there, what Peter's referring to, Atlas is uh, the local high school outdoors education program, um, which we did a, an episode last year i believe it was if not the year before i can put the link in the show notes notes for this episode um with uh, graham marshall the instructor of this course and i tell you this course is every kid's dream and every parent's envy for for what they missed out in their own childhood <laughs> it's pretty unreal yeah. 17 days avalanche education as part of your high school in addition to climbing and paddling and all the rest of it and uh, yeah it's in a bit of a rough spot at this moment but hopefully we can move past that with a bit more support from the school district for getting kids into a safe avalanche train to learn how to keep themselves safe in what's really quite accessible and they're going to go out there on their own 
regardless whether we teach them or not. So we got to teach them to keep them safe. Yeah. yeah. So there we go. So that, that sums it up, Peter. Um, if there's any way that uh, the listener could support ABBS with, uh, you know, fundraising efforts, is there any events coming up or is there anything you guys want people to know? Uh, yeah. Well, if people are, uh, you know, here locally, they can help support by donating at uh, the Whitewater office um, or contacting Whitewater directly and they'll help you get the uh, funds to the ABBS. And if you're listening from a different area and, you know, you have, your local area has uh, something similar to the ABBS, you can always donate there as well, too, and um, kind of make sure the community is safe where, where you're at. Awesome. That's a great tip. Yeah. Kids uh, shredding super hard is not unique to Whitewater. It's all over North America. Just look at the junior yeah. free ride world tour. It's pretty impressive. So yeah, let's keep these kids safe with some education, right? Yeah, you bet. Awesome. Well, thanks, uh, Peter, for taking the time, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. Cheers. The AABBS is one example of a local group taking their kids' safety into their own hands and removing the barriers to education. If you're tuned in from elsewhere in the world, maybe there's a local equivalent where you live. Or maybe there isn't, but should be. Maybe you can get involved with helping local kids pursue their passions safely. Avalanche Canada has a lot of resources for youth avalanche education online, for educators and for communities. It's easy to find on www.avalanche.ca. For another story about a local high school program educating young backcountry enthusiasts, Check out my conversation with teacher and AVI pro Graham Marshall in episode 6.23. It also features a couple of alumni of Graham's groundbreaking Atlas program and the influence of avalanche education early in their lives and how it shaped their paths to becoming avalanche professionals. Well, the stereotypical backcountry skier looks pretty similar around the world. Male, white, bearded, loves a frosty beverage at the end of the day. The reality is that's a one-dimensional view of the people who love the mountains. But getting into backcountry riding can be intimidating if you don't fit that stereotype. There is power in being in a group of people who share a similar background. In researching this show, and the idea of mentorship leading to community building, many women reached out to say that some of their biggest breakthrough moments were touring with a group of all women. There are organizations around North America trying to help provide these opportunities. Here's a conversation with Emily Wright of Ascent Mentorship based in Revelstoke. Okay, well, I'm uh, overjoyed today to be joined by Emily Wright from Ascent Mentorships based out of Revelstoke. Emily, welcome. Thanks, Dom. So nice to be here. Um, would you tell me a little bit about the Ascent Mentorship program and what it is and what the goal and the vision behind it? Yeah, absolutely. So Ascent Mentorships is um, a program that I started in Revelstoke. We are um, pairing up uh, women together one-on-one -on -one, uh, in a mentorship relationship um, and to go out into the backcountry. So we have mentors who are kind of experts in the industry and then mentees who are looking to get out there um, and we pair them up together. They kind of sign a bit of a contract going, uh, wanting to get out once a month for the season. Um, and then basically the mentee pays an insurance fee for just, um, themselves and the mentee. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a low cost, low barrier to entry way to kind of get into the backcountry and learn some more, learn some more things. That sounds awesome. So you're getting one day a month of ski touring with a, an experienced avalanche person, uh, over the course of the whole winter, right? So you could see the, a real relationship developing there. Yeah, definitely. 
have you had stories from this is the second year is that correct that this is run this is now we're now going into our fourth season which i actually yeah i was looking at the applications being like whoa this is crazy but yeah so fourth season which is great uh on your website uh it says reducing barriers to entry for women in, into the backcountry. And I was just wondering, as these seasons have gone by, um, have you had some stories from folks that have taken part in the program and, and maybe the difference that it's made to their backcountry experience? Yeah, absolutely. I always run into people in town. Revelstoke's pretty small, so <laughs> it's um, pretty often occurrence. But yeah, just running into people and they always tell me, like especially from the mentee perspective, are always telling me like how much of a difference that's made. And um, them being more confident, like what we want to do with the program is kind of build up mentees so they can eventually become mentors um, and build the program that way. Um, so yeah, just getting some more confidence in the backcountry and being able to make those decisions themselves is huge. It seems like very often um, you see maybe it's like 25% or something. I'm sure that's the wrong number, but there's not <laughs> nearly as many women in a lot of the touring um parties that you see or i think back to my days on ski patrol it's been around that a quarter to a third of the patrol population so what's it like from your perspective when you're you're getting into the backcountry skiing to to have that experience of like a full group of women because you do see that on the skin track now more and more and it just seems like they're having the time of their lives yeah it is honestly it's just such a different dynamic and it's like for me it's always been a bit more comfortable you feel um, more willing to ask questions. Uh, it's just more of like a accepting sort of slow paced learning environment rather than like, okay, we got to charge, we got to do this. We got to get a, get up there as fast as you can. And so, yeah, it just feels less intimidating. Which you make all the difference to the communication when you're dealing with something that uh, has inherent risks too, right? We all need to be comfortable to speak our, our mind and, um, or at least voice our concerns and discuss things yeah. at our own pace, right? Absolutely. I can't remember what the stat is, but it's crazy that there's like some stat that is like, okay, you have a, if you have one woman in your group, your risk goes down like 30% or something. We should dig into that. I'm sure there, yeah, I believe I've heard something along those lines too. So this sounds, this program sounds fantastic and it's really cool that it's, it, built a bit of steam here and it's going into its fourth year. Um, can you talk a little bit about like how many spaces you have available and, and how that relates to how many applicants you have? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we typically will have like 15. Um, I think the first year was a little bit bigger. So I think we had about 20, but it kind of fluctuates based on how many mentor applications we get. Um, yeah, the, the nature of being in the avalanche industry and being kind of like in a position to be able to mentor is so fluctuating, like people move, people are just like so busy that they can't commit to it. So um, yeah, we get that fluctuating quite a bit. And the goal, as I mentioned earlier, was just to kind of build up mentees so that they can become mentors so that eventually we can build the program. But um, so yeah, we, de we definitely kind of get like 60 to 90 mentee applications every year um, and then have to break it down to, to yeah, however many mentors we get. So this year, I think we have about 12. Okay. And the, um, the mentors that you have, have you had um, kind of testimonials of the difference that it's made to them personally to, to fill that mentor role? Yeah, for sure. So we don't have like a ton of criteria to be a mentor. Like we just want you to have a good basis of like at least an AST2 and like 
a bunch of experience going out there. And a lot of the people are kind of going through the ACMG guide program and they just want experience kind of taking people out and, and being in that scenario. So that actually I've been told helps as well for that. And it kind of builds up their resume in a sense of um, like, it looks good for them um, on their guides exams and stuff. So Fantastic. Sounds like it benefits both sides. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have other events or uh, ways of connecting people? It seems like there's, um, at the end of the day, some people that don't get to take part in the experience or maybe have to wait for another year based on the demand that you've got. Yeah, we we have one kickoff event, which is um, just for the, for the women, but we do have a Facebook group um, that anybody can join. I saw a line on your uh, website here that really stood out that said uh, most experienced backcountry users can pinpoint one person who is essential to their growth in the sport. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about your personal experience with mentorship and, and if that uh, influenced your your vision and goals for starting this organization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so originally I had been uh, living in Whistler and I did, I had a girlfriend of mine that it wasn't like a formal <clears throat> mentorship situation, but it was, yeah, a really good friend of mine. We're still really good friends. And she was, yeah, just so patient, so outgoing and willing to bring us out there. Like she, she definitely kind of committed and with all of her friends, I think she just wants friends to go out there with. So she, yeah, she committed the time and basically um, got me into the sport, which I am so appreciative of and thank you Abby <laughs> um, yeah so she has been a huge kind of inspiration um, she's been super supportive it's all of her photos on our website and stuff so she's she's yeah she's been great um, the program actually was inspired by a similar program that exists on the coast um, called Mountain Mentors and when I moved to Revelstoke I just didn't really have um, that friendship base or anyone to kind of lean on to take me out and around. I didn't really know the area and yeah, so I, I kind of did it from a self-serving purpose, but it's obvious that, um, there's a lot of demand in the community for, for something like that. So it's been really rewarding. Sounds like it's really blossomed into something that's got a bit of life of its own. Totally. Well, that's awesome. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us before uh, we let you go here. Um, Registration for this year ended in September, but uh, moving forward for for future seasons, what should uh, prospective mentees know before they sign up? Yeah, we just uh, we open beginning of September, so September first to thirtieth, applications are open. Um, we do, yeah, we give preference to people that have their AST ones and all their gear and have been in Revelstoke, um, have an address in Revelstoke. We want to kind of build the community feel on that, so. Um, yeah, and then it's really tough in applications if you don't give um, give as much as you're willing to, like give as much as you're willing to. We want to get a real like sense of your personality in your application so we can pair you up with like an appropriate mentor. So, so the more you give in your application, the be- the better chance you have, I'd say. <laughs> well, that sounds awesome. If you want more information, uh, the link will be in the show notes for this episode. And thank you for taking the time to talk to us about uh, local initiative for mentorship. It sounds like a much needed endeavor. Yeah. Thanks so much, Tom. Ascent Mentorship is one example of an organization trying to help link up ladies for backcountry experiences. There are other examples such as Mountain Mentors, 
the Lady Alliance, and Inclusivity here in BC, as well as the Airy Women's Mentorship Program in the U.S. The internet and social media makes it easier than ever to find these grassroots endeavors. Maybe there's something near where you live. So, what exactly is mentorship? Mark Betts of Australia, in his article Why Mentorship Matters in Our Community, writes that the fundamental idea behind mentoring is that an expert in a field, the mentor, provides advice to up-and-coming talent, generally less experienced individuals or even less privileged. He continues to say, the knowledge gained from a mentor allows the young and less experienced to accelerate their progress and steer clear of the mistakes their mentors made in the past. This idea of mentorship has been borrowed from the business community. Sean Zimmerman Wall, a fellow host of this podcast, pointed out that words matter and that maybe a better fit is stewardship. We had an interesting conversation about this amongst the podcast hosts, along with Ken Wiley, an IFMGA mountain guide featured in episode 8.1. It came to light that mentorship can have connotations of power and hierarchy, and perhaps be limited to the transfer of knowledge and skills, whereas stewardship can imply care and intentionality and a big picture view of the process. Stewardship can be a two-way street. Instead of an expert teaching a rookie, it involves the development of a working relationship that enriches anyone. Regardless of what word you use, there are plenty of stories of mentees, those on the receiving end of the knowledge transfer, evolving into mentors as they move further down the path of acquiring the skills and experience to safely travel in the backcountry. This further strengthens the community by increasing the connections between people. So far, we've looked at organizations that deliver structured courses or facilitate one-on-one -on -one connections between people. But it's 2024, people, and our digital connections have allowed for the crowdsourcing of everything. It's no surprise, then, that this is happening in the snow and avalanche world, too. A great example of this is backcountry user-submitted avalanche and weather observations being used by forecast centers to help build a more complete picture of the avalanche hazard. Another version of this in my local area is State of the Snowpack. State of the Snowpack attempts to answer a question. How can local avalanche practitioners and professionals help keep their backcountry communities safer? State of the Snowpack has been hosting live events and posting live updates from the backcountry for the past few years. Starting in Nelson, BC, the movement has spread to Rossland and now Revelstoke. Here's my conversation with my buddy Jason Wishlow, a State of the Snowpack board member and longtime avalanche forecaster at Whitewater Ski Resort. Okay, Jason Wishlow, welcome to uh, the Avalanche Hour podcast, buddy. It's uh, good to sit here with you. You're a good friend of mine and a guy that I've worked with for years, a guy that has uh, taken me out on blasting routes in the early days of getting my <laughs> ticket and working together at Whitewater. And uh, yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you here. In the Avalanche Hour studio slash my living room. Yeah, it's a good place to be. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, obviously super stoked when you reached out because um, I think there's uh, a lot of cool things happening, you know, in, in, uh, from my perspective as a forecaster and things I'm involved with and that we'll talk about State of the Snowpack and new lift at Whitewater going in and some things around that. So, um, yeah, I'm just super stoked to be here and have a little chat right on buddy cool well uh, let's start with a bit of your background um where did you grow up and how did you get into ski touring in the backcountry well i'm a, a very fortunate uh true local boy born in nelson raised in the slocan valley 
And so my first turns were made up at uh, Morning Mountain, which is now all mountain biking, as a lot of people know. And then um, it transitioned. I skied at Red for a number of years and then uh, settled on Whitewater as my home resort. Uh, that's where my folks would drop my brother and I off and we'd spend a lot of time with our friends just skiing, as kids still do. And... You know, I think that was that was quite a long time ago. <laughs> I don't think ski touring was quite uh, quite uh, the thing it is now. But uh, we still managed to go out there and almost get ourselves into trouble, probably in places that we shouldn't have been. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I did tempt a couple tours with knowing very little um, up to the top of Weimar Peak and skiing Kubas at a at a young age and and maybe got away with uh, a couple things that I shouldn't have, which has kind of lent uh, itself to me moving into the direction I'm going now. I think about those things quite regularly. Um, left here, went to the University of Calgary where I enrolled in the Outdoor Pursuits program there. Uh, graduated with a Bachelor of Kinesiology, major Outdoor Pursuits. Um, came back to the area from Calgary um, I was always here in the summer and then settled here full time again, felt um, it was the, the draw to return to Nelson and the Kootenays and uh, started patrolling in 2000 and had kind of mixed up, did a little bit of uh, uh, work with some cat skiing companies and, you know, had guiding on my mind and then um, realized that I, I really had a passion for more of the patrolling avenue, um, which uh, transitioned into forecasting. You know, Whitewater, we're fortunate to be able to have a very active um, avalanche control program. Not the, not the biggest program, but very, very active. And you get a lot of opportunity. And, and I think I started kind of digging in the snow and doing a lot more control work. And that's what got me hooked and, and slid into the forecasting role. And I've been doing that, I think, for 14 years now, 15 years. And I'm super blessed and I'm stoked to be part of it. Right so, on. Yeah. Uh, season 23 or season 24, I think now. Here we go. Whitewater. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. That's yeah. amazing. The longest serving uh, currently working there at Whitewater. Kirk Jensen still got me. Oh, he does. Yeah. He does. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's not patrolling anymore. But he's not patrolling. <laughs> longest serving patrol. <laughs> there okay, you go. I got you. Yeah. Oh, man. That's great. Well, and for folks that don't know, uh, you know, if elsewhere in North America or around the world that might be listening to this, uh, Whitewater is a small ski resort, but it's got big terrain surrounding it. And, um, one of the defining characteristics is the uh, relatively easy access to the backcountry. Uh, there's a lot of terrain. Uh, it's generally all pretty skiable, lots of great tree skiing and uh, plenty of fun alpine stuff to get into too. So as a kid skiing there, you must have been seeing folks getting after it in the bowl and skiing some of these fun steep lines. So that yeah. whole awareness that the backcountry is there probably just was with you your whole life, I guess. It it, it was. And like I say, I, th I don't think... Uh, it wasn't even close to the same conversations, to the same experience level. You know, you look at the industry, how far it's come in general, just from a safety perspective, from a knowledge perspective, from the courses people are able to access and how easily they are, which is a good thing because I, I think uh, access to backcountry terrain has become uh, increasingly uh, easy. Um, even for people, like I said, even back in the day, uh, we were able to access it. Now you have 
so many more people who are skiing and and I think the desire for people to go out there and shred um, pow is stronger than ever. And um, I, th I think one of our main roles, especially forecasting community and everything is the, is continual education, trying to make sure people have that knowledge base to keep themselves safe when they, they do travel into the backcountry because it is an amazing place to be, obviously. That's why we love it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah? Well, and you've been involved in that education side of things, whether it's uh, working with the high school kids or teaching AST courses, but we're here today to talk about State of the Snowpack. Indeed. Um, so tell me a bit about uh, what State of the Snowpack is and what it is you guys do. So State of the Snowpack, and for everybody listening, um, there's been a, a couple people that have touched on this uh, already, but um, I'm going to be another voice. Uh, I, I've become early on, I was part of um, this initiative it was created by Morgan Dinsdale, um, and she she borrowed the idea. She spent time living in Jackson Hole and they would bring um, community together and they'd have presentations um, kind of uh, once every three weeks or month or so um, just to bring the most up-to-date um, snowpack conditions and uh, avalanche conditions to the public in a, in a public forum so people could mingle, socialize, and ask questions and listen to experts in their field um, talk about what was happening in the local backcountry. And she came to Nelson, spent some time on uh, our patrol up at Whitewater and um, kind of caught the bug of... Uh, the, the Nelson vibe, I guess, so to speak, and really thought it would be a wonderful thing to bring to the Nelson community, seeing how many people were using the backcountry here. So um, got myself on board, Judson Wright um, from Kootenai Backcountry Guides, um, who's been on your podcast. And so we started um, doing these live events, and um, which has transitioned into... Um, kind of on the spot videos as things are changing when we're in the field, um, giving people the most uh, up-to-date uh, conditions report that we can um, to try keep uh, people as current as possible. So the, the main initiative is to really support Avalanche Canada's forecasting, uh, which Avcan does an amazing job. And so we just want to put a more localized and um, region specific, break down the regions a little bit more so that people can look at one of our videos on Instagram. They run about two, two and a half minutes, um, uh, update hazards, update weather, if there's any been any recent avalanche activity and just keep people um, as current as they can. So an, another tool, I think, uh, and especially from um, uh, a localized perspective, I think that's that's the key the key thing. And the other important thing is that we have kept these um, community events going. So we have, um, we were talking earlier, we have two events coming up in December. Um, one, um, well, the Nelson event is the, is the Monday the 18th of, of uh, December at the Royal. Um, and we'll have a snowpack presentation and some other presentations there. People can come and support, ask questions, you know, have a, have a beer or drink together and, you know, be able to, you know, meet the people who are going to be, um, relaying this information, uh, in person. And I think that's a really cool thing when people can 
um, make it more relatable and can talk to you and ask you questions. That's that's what I really, really enjoy more than anything else. You know, I love I love talking to people that way and presenting the information there. Um, and then Rosalind, we've got um, uh, Keith Robin, and he's going to be doing his uh, the same presentations, but we're moving that to Rosalind because it's uh, definitely little bit different snowpack out there uh and it's uh you know everybody every community's got a a, a different vibe so that's the 21st at the fire hall and he'll be presenting there um all of this information is on our instagram and social media at state of the snowpack and um state of the snowpack.com as well on the website so if i've messed up and got any of these dates wrong which i'm pretty sure i've got them right then you know please just uh check our socials and and you'll be able to um, get the most current information available as far as um when exactly those things are happening in times like that oh presentations yeah one of the i don't know maybe defining things about the canadian avalanche uh scene and i I would argue that it it extends across the border too is that it's pretty unified and that um, people really love talking about this kind of stuff um and so it's pretty cool that we have events like what you're holding um and then your your updates kind of like supplement what we see on the mountain information network because people throw like a bit of info up there a test result or a photo but when you guys are filming these updates you're actually out there in the mountains and so you get so much just from seeing what the weather's doing and seeing the snow blowing around or seeing you know how uniformly it is across the landscape uh, as well as having you guys talking about it and showing a maybe a quick test or something so i think it's been a valuable addition and and hopefully this can continue in other places around uh the uh, snowy mountainous places there. Yeah, I agree. And it is, you know, when people see you in the environment, I think it, it makes a significant difference. And it's a lot easier to present when you're in in those spaces, uh, to film a video when things are actually happening. Um, and, you know, that the intent is to push this further. We are um, attempting to work into Revelstoke now. And I think Morgan's you know, made some really good contacts there and she's um, working really, really hard at making that happen. Um, Another, you know, wonderful mountain town. And um, I just think the more, um, you know, that that real ground root um, work and community level um, um, contacts that we can make and the, you know, information that we can present that's relatable to people can make a difference and i think we're all on board um you know with our with our community and and with state of the snowpack and we always say like if you know we can if our information just helps one person come back at the end of the day and sadly i think we've we've all lost people in the mountains and i think that's that's a big draw for me to really try and you know impart whatever knowledge i have and um to to try get people back safe and make uh, as good a decision as they can make, then um, I'm doing a wonderful service. So that's that's the take anyway. But, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. You, you're you out there, you know, on a regular basis too with your job as a forecaster at Whitewater. So you're already picking up that information, but you care to elaborate a bit on sort of your motivation to get involved with it, um, having, you know, spent 20 odd years working at the resort and that sort of thing. I've had close calls myself um, and, uh, you know, I think when when those things happen, it it really makes you evaluate, um, you know, 
I, I was caught and buried in an avalanche and doing control work um, in Catch Basin up at Whitewater. And we were standing there, you know, with probably 50 or more years of collective experience and, um, and ended up in a situation that we shouldn't have been in. <laughs> and it just shows, you know, like, and I'm always been trying to be very open about sharing this experience because I, I think there's a lot of stigma in the avalanche world. And as much as we try to break it down, people still hide the fact when they've had close calls or near misses. And, you know, I've, I've always wanted to put that out there and talk about it because um, it can happen. Uh, and when it does, it happens fast. And there, you get all kinds of different uh, elements coming at you that, um, that, that can catch you. Uh, off guard and that's what happened to me and one minute I was standing on a slope and the next minute I was going what it felt like uh, you know 250 kilometers an hour and um, then the snow pouring over the back of my head and I was like wow uh, I, I was really surprised but that's where Kirk saw me I managed to kick a hand out um, and so my hand was visible on the snow so they got to me really quickly but a real learnable Absolutely. and uh, I think that's um, something that uh, has happened to a, a lot of us and I just you know that to, for me th this has really been um, not particularly from that event but just from many and others um, that I've heard about friends and and family and it's just uh, you know something to keep people safer is a it's a wonderful thing that's where I've uh, you know I've, I've fallen in love with the patrol aspect it's why I've been doing this for as long as I have been um, you know that and the huge money but uh, <laughs> <laughs> for sure that's why we get into ski <laughs> but it's uh, you know it's it, I, I just found that um, especially now in the, in the forecasting realm it's it's been a really really rewarding fulfilling job and, and I right. love it and I love uh, you know I've, I've been I, I've always thought I, I, the people I've been fortunate enough to learn from over the years and I've, I've had a long career in this now and I've you know I've, I've I've seen you know some mechanized skiing operations I've seen you know I've got to spend some time with you like little stints here and there just uh you know doing some professional development with highways I've um you know it, and the the forecasting side of things with with the ski hill it's it's um just a, a really really cool environment and something that um you know, to, to take those learnables from a variety of different people. And I've got to work with some super amazing experienced people and to try and take those lessons and, um, you know, move forward the best I can in my career. And I think for anybody listening out there, I think that's, you know, whether you're a recreationalist, whether you're a professional in the industry, um, we all don't know everything. I, I think that the more you can keep advancing yourself throughout um, gaining knowledge and your experience base to help you make those decisions is massive. So a big thank you to anybody who might hear this that had an influence on me and you probably had a greater influence on me than you realized that you did. Yeah, yeah well, it's got a good culture of uh, continuing professional development, right? All these people that work in the 
avalanche industry, we're always just, well, we recognize we don't know it all and we're always trying to learn more. And I think that um, it's good to talk about mistakes for one thing, because then it sort of demystifies things a little bit for, yeah. for the recreational public. But also the other thing is like, if a professional can make a mistake and they're constantly trying to improve their skills, it sounds to me like a lot of the motivation that you've got here is to pass on some of your knowledge and continue that mentorship down the road to people that don't get to get out on the, in the snow five days a week, um, yeah. that maybe just get one or two days a week at best and uh, maybe don't get quite the same exposure to mentors and that sort of thing. And it seems to me like uh, keeping in the spirit of this episode about like uh, grassroots mentorship opportunities, uh, state of the snowpack as a, a, a registered, registered nonprofit, be made up of a bunch of local professionals. Um, they're just breaking down some of the barriers to uh, information and, and just helping pass on knowledge as much as possible in, in the local environment where they live and recreate. Yeah, yeah, I think you just said it beautifully. And I don't even, all I need to do is agree with you 100%. That's uh, exactly, you know, what we're trying to do. And if I can impart any of my knowledge um, and, and help help one, two, or hopefully a lot more people and have people engage, um, especially with the AvCam forecast in a more meaningful way, um, can watch those videos and help them make a decision on um, uh, where they might be going. You know, I, I focus more on the whitewater backcountry because that's where I'm spending a lot of the time filming those videos. Judson, a lot more in Kootenai Pass, but... Now we've got Keith out in Roslyn, you know, like, and so we're trying these uh, Avalanche Canada regions are so large and they've done a good job last year, I think, in trying to bring them down and, and make them a, a little bit more fluid. So if something's changing in one part of the region, then they can highlight that. And I think that was a, that's a real win, yeah. um, uh, helping people out. And I think we're just trying to even break that down even further to try, um, get get people on board with what's happening uh immediately in the area they could be traveling in so they log on and you know check their instagram and there's a video um the night before and they they know what they're getting into i think it's going to make a big difference absolutely yeah, yeah and highly recommend people uh, check out the live events too because they're pretty fun they're awesome sure. yeah and i think uh, you know every one of those live events it's you know whether i'm presenting um just uh part of uh part of the audience it's it's always nice to see the way that people connect and uh come together and really uh share passion for what it is that uh we're doing because uh, we all love the snow and in the end everybody wants to stay safe and Absolutely. we all want to ski pow so let's make it all happen yeah, there we go. Yeah. We were talking about earlier off the air that uh, if you were new to an area, it would be probably your absolute best resource would be to go to one of these live events. You meet other people that are like minded, also in touring much. and yeah. have a, an, you know, an interest in safety. So, hey, yeah. right on. And these live events are always, you know, they're changing. We we have a bit of a format, but there's there's always some different things going on um, that are that are pretty cool that I, I think people it's. As, as much as you're learning, you know, and it's it's really cool when you're presenting, you can, you, you don't hear anything. People are fully engaged, but um, they're 
also very very entertaining you yeah, know yeah. and i think that's uh, that's a really important part of them is that you're you're not just sitting there it's not like a classroom feel it's very much you're going to an event and you're part of the event and sure. you know not even just the opportunity to engage with uh, presenters or instructors but um to engage with other people like you're saying uh in the room and yeah we always have some some interesting things happening so and we're really moving that forward to try and try and keep people as engaged and you know as and learning as much as possible awesome well you heard it here go check it out yeah please Jay, come thanks for joining me man yeah. really appreciate it it's been awesome dom all right, thank buddy. you very much for having me it's a pleasure all right if you're in nelson or revelstoke there are state of the snowpack events happening on march 7th stateofthesnowpack.com for more information. If there are events and organizations like this where you live, please share them in the comments below the Instagram post for this episode. Let's keep the conversation going and the community growing. In the fall, I put out an Instagram story on the Avalanche Hour podcast Instagram feed asking our awesome listeners for their take on mentorship and how to find it. We received some awesome insights and there was a resounding theme of have the courage to be vulnerable, embrace the awkwardness, and reach out to people you want to learn from. Not everyone is going to have the time or the inclination to help, but you may just end up with a nugget of wisdom, or maybe even a touring day with somebody more experienced. I have to agree that most people I've met in this path from recreational backcountry skiing to working as an avalanche professional have been welcoming and approachable. Be respectful, but be bold. You never know who has time for a conversation. I can think of one person who has consistently asked the hard questions, created opportunities for people to get into outdoor pursuits, and show that the outdoors is not just for white people. For our last conversation of the episode, I would like to bring in Judy Kasiyama, the founder of Color the Trails. Color the Trails is focused on improving access to outdoor activities for BIPOC adventurers. They pride themselves on not only hosting events that break barriers for BIPOC to enter outdoor sports, but also for creating media that showcases BIPOC stories in the outdoors, because representation matters. Today, I'd like to welcome to the Avalanche Tower podcast, uh, Judy Kasiyama, um, the founder of Color the Trails. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> um, thanks for joining me. So uh, first off, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, Color the Trails and uh, what it is, how it started, and uh, what the vision is behind the organization. Yeah, um, Color the Trails, um, I founded it around 2017. Um, it was really birthed out of a place of wanting to create and cultivate um, safe space for Black, Indigenous, and racialized communities, folks who were who are newer to the outdoors per se, um, and creating that safe space for them to come and learn and just be in the outdoors. Um, I was living in Vancouver, I graduated university living in Vancouver. I was doing a lot of just personal hikes and, um, and you know, being in the Vancouver area, there's a lot of different hiking groups on Facebook and stuff like that. But I just didn't really feel that I had the skill sets to join a lot of those um, hiking groups. It just felt like very almost elitist um, because when I'm reading what they're doing, the gear that they have, I was like, I'm nowhere near that. It just really didn't create a space that really welcomed people who were adults, who were newer to the outdoors or were experiencing the outdoors in the in, in, uh, for the first time. 
So, um, and that's how Call of the Trails honestly came into fruition. It's just like, I was like, you know what? I don't have a lot of experiences. I'm doing these a lot easier hikes, just like walking in nature. I find that very therapeutical. Um, I want to be able to create a space where I have people that look like me um, be able to gain these um, skills alongside together um, that we can learn and grow together. Um, so that's what it kind of started off, um, just like organizing just small, easy hikes and trying to get people to come and go on a hike with me or a nature walk with me. Um, and then um, because I am a his, I have a degree in international development, history and gender studies, um, I just got curious instead of researching you know, diversity in the outdoors and specifically in Canada. Um, I think, you know, social media has its good and bad and the good aspect of social media, it allowed me to see a lot more representation through Instagram, I would say, at that time in 2017. Um, but there was a lot, and most of that representation was coming out of the United States, but it wasn't coming to Canada. Um, so I started just kind of researching, you know, if there's any hiking groups or anything that's um, that's for BIPOC in Canada. Um, nothing was coming up. So I was like, okay, I'm going to create my own thing. And that's why I kind of be, really began advocating for diversity and inclusion. And then around 2018, I didn't call out, called in a few, um, Ardo brands, um, in Canada and just being like, Hey, um, when you guys, when I, cause I did a year long study and looking at marketing and all that. Um, I noticed that, you know, when it comes to marketing, the outdoors, you know, prior to 2020, um, there wasn't a lot of diversity um, in marketing. There wasn't black people or indigenous people or any diverse individual, diverse bodies when it comes to marketing the outdoors, whether it's camping or hiking or anything, it's just very, um, it was very, very white male or white women but not a lot of like diverse people. And um, I know the listeners kind of get offended when I say white male, but that's the realistic of thing. If you go back and look at through a lot of things, magazine and stuff like that, the story perspective has always been on the white male um, aspect. So it's not me coming after white men, but it's just like, this is history and this is factual. Um, and um, so, yeah, so then um, I call like, you know, MEC, um, other brands into the conversation. I ended up working with MEC. That's when their CEO letter on diversity kind of came out around 2018 and kind of created, started generating the whole conversation about diversity and inclusion in the outdoors in Canada. So I kind of spearheaded that conversation in Canada in terms of why there's a lack of diversity and inclusion. Um, and that's when like a lot of my work was, um, doing and other folks in, you know, who have the, also their organizations since that time also were pushing, um, this, um, this diverse story and diverse narrative. Um, yeah. So then that's just kind of like what sparked Hello the Trails to really come into fruition. Um, my relationship with Mac wasn't that great, but we parted ways and, um, just working kind of on my own, but slowly, I think just building that momentum. Um, I did color the trails basically out of my own expense. Like I wasn't getting any financial support or anything. Um, because for me, I saw a vision, I saw an opportunity that was there that nobody else could see at that time. Um, and just like really creating smaller events. Um, I think, you know, just like organizing hikes. And oftentimes I think people don't realize that it's not easy 
creating community in a space that, you know, that's often they're not represented. So even though a pool hikes out, sometimes there'll be two people that show up or one person shows up and I'll go on a hike with that one person because they made the effort to show up. Um, and slowly but surely through words of mouth, through people interacting with me and knowing who I am and my intentionality into wanting to bring more diverse into the outdoors, Color the Trails just continue to grow on its own, just like honestly through word of mouth, not even through social media, just through words of mouth, through a lot of different Facebook groups that I would go in and just, you know, invite BIPOC folks to come on a hike with me. And we just started off with just hiking or snowshoeing because those are very low barrier cost um so just like doing that just us going on nature walks and then uh, we did our first kind of like big major event uh, which was like um the black like me outdoor uh film festival uh film festival that i founded um and i partnered up with Terex. we hosted that and showcased just like Try to really, you know, I think it, it was filled up, like I think 70 people came to that event and like, you know, that was the mass capacity, but it was seven BIPOC folks who came out and then saw films that I was able to find that showed that representation. And I think for that, that opened up a lot of people's imagination to be like, oh, wow, like there are people like me in these spaces who are running trails, who are bigger body. They're not just like thin athletes, but they're bigger body individual right or there's like people that ski there's a whole organization we didn't even know existed um that where that supports black folks in the u.s especially to get into skiing and stuff like that um so there's all these like different storyline that i think our community didn't really know existed and i was able to kind of show a little glimpse of that right and i think that really ignited a lot of people to be like oh wow this space is for me like i can be in this space and then 2020 COVID happened. Um, so then, you know, we couldn't really meet in person, but I think the summer 2020 with the murder of George Floyd um, and all the intensity of the Black Lives Matter movement, I think people then began, the other industry whom I had emailed a lot of brands six months prior to 2020, who told me they didn't have a budget or anything. Um, and then when the BLM movement kind of um, ignited. Um, and that's where like a lot of brands all of a sudden had budget and had support and came to be like, oh yeah, Judy, we found your email in our inbox. Let's have a conversation. You know, when they had ignored me, you know, when I had this vision prior, you know, 2017, 2018, 2019, me reaching out, me trying, and they just weren't interested until 2020. So, um, yeah, so, you know, that's kind of like where I think Color the Trails birth and people to try to understand that, you know, I've been in this space for a long time, advocating before it was trendy. Um, and that um, for me, I saw a vision and opportunity to engage more diverse people because Canada prides itself as being multicultural. Um, but then when we see how media and representation shows, there's like a lot of people's voices and story missing when it comes to the outdoor space because of all the barriers that entails to getting outside, you know, um, and me speaking about this has also, I've received a lot of hate. I've received a lot of criticism, um, to a place, you know, threats where people will message the work, the place I was working in telling them to fire me because I want white people removed in the outdoors. When in reality, I'm asking there's enough at the table 
just make the table more welcoming um, and more space for more people. It doesn't take away from white males who are skiing big lines or doing X, Y, Z. It just means that, you know, let's open up door into this industry because at the end of the day, based on the research that I did, for example, in skiing, for every boomer that retires, you need three millennials to replace them, right? So it's like, for me, I'm also looking at a marketing strategy and being like, okay, so then how are all these outdoor spaces gonna continue on if there's no diversity in that spaces, it's gonna die off. You need a new consumer market and the BIPOC community are the emerging market out there. And there are people who are second, third generation who do have the capital to be able to expand in this space, but they just never saw themselves represented. So they can't be, they don't see themselves in this space. Like how do you remarket that and draw those faces and draw those experience into the outdoor to make the outdoor more richer experience? but also looking at the conservation aspect of things and being like, um, you know, we want to protect our environment, but we need our voices and our votes for the environment. We can't just ask for the small percentage of people that care about the outdoors, right? Um, we need more perspective and more voices to come forward so that we can get all these um, conservation policies passed and X, Y, Z. So when a community is excluded from this conversation, how are they supposed to make an informed decision because that space has never been welcoming to them. So that's kind of like the long journey of how Palo the Trails came to be and the vision that I had for it. Um, and slowly but surely, we started growing across Canada. So we're not just based in BC, we're also based in Alberta, Edmonton and Calgary, um, Toronto area, as well as Montreal. Um, and each of the chapters are led by community members who live and work and play in that area and who are local to the area. So, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. It's really grown by the sounds of it. And when you look at the list of past events that you have uh, hosted on the website, it's incredible. It really spans everything from, as you say, where you started with hiking and, and snowshoeing and then into sea kayaking and shoreline exploration and, you know, bouldering and climbing, mountaineering, mm -hmm. skiing, snowboarding, avalanche training courses, uh, ice climbing. It's, it, the list is incredible. And I, I think your point about the more people that are outside and see themselves at home in the outdoor space, the more people care about the outdoors and the more uh, incentive there will be for our politicians to pay attention to the outdoors and prioritize um, sustaining our environment. So it's it's important on so many levels. Mm -hmm. No, exactly. And I think like, you know, we have to look at, you know, whose voice, you know, there's a great quote that I always quote. Um, I always say like, you know, we always have to ask whose voice and whose story is missing and like try to find that story too. And I think like it's really important for us to kind of, despite how we're feeling or, you know, because I think as humans, we're not always welcoming to change. <laughs> We don't want change to happen. We like things the way it's, we like it and nothing else. But when we're talking about outdoor and recreation and creating welcoming environment, um, we have to kind of even like look among our own friend circle and be like, okay, I don't see a lot of people of color skiing. Why is that? Um, it's not as if like, you know, genetically white folks are um, designed to just be able to ski. It's a skill that we all learn and acquire over the years, right? So it's totally. like, okay, so what's stopping the BIPOC community? Well, if you go to most resorts, um, it's very white, it's very affluent, it's very wealthy. And not to say like the BIPOC community lack that capital, 
But for me, I think there's a huge misunderstanding because like the space is already, the culture is already not really inclusive. Um, it's a different language. It's a different way of moving. So it's just like, it's very intimidating. Even if you're, even if you're a white individual still trying to get into that space, it's still very intimidating if you don't have the capital to be able to be or have a community to kind of help alongside you. I'm pretty sure all of us in some ways try to get into a sport and activity, but because we found people who helped us get into those spaces, it made that transition a lot easier versus us trying to do it on our own, right? So. Um, so for me, I think like we have to look at how do we bring more people to appreciate the beauty of Canada because there's so much beauty here and, um, and then how do we cultivate a relationship between us and the land and also the first peoples that were here and how do we bring about reconciliation with indigenous community and what does that look like? So, um, so our work is very much, very, not just like bringing diversity to the outdoor, but also looking at ecotourism, looking like how we move through the land and all these different aspects of, you know, what it means to be human, <laughs> yeah. you know, and in the outdoor space. That was a really beautiful segue into mentorship there when you talk about how it's so hard to get into an activity unless you have somebody sort of to help you along the way or somebody that can kind of make that uh, entry into the, the activity easier. Because um, it really is hard to get into a lot of the backcountry sports without knowing somebody that's willing to just be patient with you and, and take you along and <clears throat> no matter what your background is. Um, so talking of mentorship, it seems like mentorship and community building are totally tied together. Mm -hmm. um, how does uh, mentorship look like within Color of the Trails? Because you've kind of formalized this through courses and stuff as well as the more informal kind of community building side of mm -hmm. things. Yeah, so... Um like I honestly got into skiing randomly. Um, I saw an ad on Facebook uh, that's like, oh, learn to ski or snowboard in Whistler for 25 bucks. And I was like, this is a scam. Um, so then I end up calling Whistler. They're like, no, it's not a scam. Um, they have this program called Never Ever Days where you can learn to ski or snowboard for $25 and it's a full day lesson with rental, everything included. So I was like, okay, that's weird. So then I tried that's to gather amazing. a few people to come with me. People weren't having it. So I was like, you know what? I'm the kind of person, like I do things by myself. Um, I'm an introvert. So like, I don't mind being in spaces by myself. So I went with another friend that I convinced to go with me and we took skiing. And that was the most scary thing for me. Um, even though we're in a bunny hill, I thought I was going to die. I thought I was going to slide off the mountain and fall to my death. But um but it was like scary, but also it was a lot of fun. So I was like, you know what? And I'm not a give up or I'm like, I want to figure out what this sport is. And like, I want to be somewhat decent at it. Um, so that's where kind of like my learn to ski. This is around 2019. Um, so, you know, when winter, 29, uh, winter 2018, 2019. And then, um, yeah, I learned you know, I learned that this program exists throughout Canada. So I was like, you know, I still don't have all the capital to be able to take on full on ski lessons. So I just did a few never every day program to a point where I was like, okay, I kind of get it. And then was able to find some, um, use gear and use my local resort here for women's night where it was cheap, you know, in the evening and just went and practice and practice and practice and practice at nighttime and, you know, get it got better and better to the point where I was like, wow, I love this sport. I want to bring it into my community. So then uh, the following winter, 2019, 2020, that's when I began to facilitate 
really pushing with Whistler back home and be like, okay, can you guys help me register, you know, these many people or let me know when the day is so I can get people to go in and register because it sells out really fast. Um, and so the first year, there was two of us. The second year we I, uh, went back, it was like 20 people that I gathered to come and learn to ski or snowboard. And people didn't even That's know awesome. this existed, right? And the great thing is they give you coupons to come back where it's like 50% off day pass, you know, 50% off rental. So people did end up going back and utilizing it. And it's also a great marketing opportunity for Whistler because they're capturing new people, right? Because because of them, now I'm a skier, now I ski Whistler Blackcomb. So it's like, it's a process that's actually working. It's a great marketing opportunity for them as a resort to attract more people. Um, so when that happened i was like okay for me i don't like doing things that's just like one time i was like how then do i create a mentorship program or opportunity for people to continuously work and i'm a hustler so i was in with emailing whistler trying to figure out who's the right person to contact in whistler just like trying trying and i think um, I did an interview somewhere where somebody in one of the exact team read the interview about the program and then they're like, oh, wow, like it's actually working. So they ended up end up working um, with me where now we're working with them, part of the Epic Promise to be able to bring up to, I think we have like 150 people um, in the winter year where we create design program for up to 150 people to come ski or snowboard in Whistler. And, um, and what's really cool about it through mentorship is that we are able to offer like very basic intro, but then be able to have progression from level one all the way to level five. And then we partner up with another local business to be able to do off-piste kind of like more experienced um, skiers. That way each year people can come and do their intro um, and, you know, go practice for the winter. The second year they can come and take, you know, level one or, you know, level two or three or four to continue to like improve their skill set to a point where that now they're building that confidence. And I think like mentorship is so essential. Um, but I find also what is interesting is that finding mentorship in the winter sport has been the most difficulty because people are not patient with beginner and people who are slower X, Y, Z, because on a pow day, people are very individualistic, um, selfish, because they wanna go ski that pow. They don't wanna wait or um, pass that knowledge into somebody else. And I think that's really sad. Something that I'm seeing in the snow, snow sport space is that sense of selfishness um, and not being able to way for others um, or like draw others into the joy that you're experiencing because you're trying to ma you make it seem as if this is your last winter i mean in some ways yes it could be because we are playing in a very kind of dangerous terrain but for me i get more joy when i bring beginners in or people who are newer because the conversation is exciting you see the joy in their face when somebody learns to do their first turn and all those different things like we're just like playing and having fun in the outdoor. It doesn't become this whole thing of I'm going to go and conquer this mountain or I'm going to go and shred the biggest line. Because I think for me, I personally, I don't find that attractive. I don't find that fun. Uh, for me, the fun comes in the community and the people who I surround myself with. Uh, we can go and ski and just have fun and then talk about it a year later and be like, oh, do you remember that time? 
And for us, that's where it's bringing the joy. So we run a lot of mentorship program, um, not just like with skiing and snowboard. We also have a really great mountain biking mentorship program um, that's been going on for three years. Um, this is our fourth cohort that we have. Um, and we found a little bit more support from the biking industry than I would say in the snow sport industry, um, where we basically help our mentees be able to access um, cheap rentals while they're learning. We have a rent-to-own program where if they want to purchase a bike, they have up to a year to make a monthly payment versus coughing up anywhere for two to three, four grand all at once. So we run that program. And then uh, very thankful for our friends at, you know, um, Smith Helmet as well as like Raceface um, for providing us protective gear. Um, Seven Mash also provided us um, jerseys and short and stuff like that. So we give everybody like a starter kit and be like, this is what you have. You have shoes, you have, you know, jerseys, you have access to a bike rental that's affordable. You have your helmet, you have your gloves and you have an experienced mentor who's gonna go ride with you. They're not teaching you, they're just going and riding with you, showing you, you know, the easy trails, the green trails, the blue trails, or teaching you, you know, how to be safe on trails, how to look at features and you discuss. So like there's that knowledge sharing and it's been really great to see those relationships cultivate outside of just like our mountain biking mentorship program. You know, so people then go skiing together because they found out that they like skiing or they found out like, you know, they love the same music. So they go hang out and they go to um, concerts together. But like that's relationship that wouldn't have, would never otherwise be able to connect if it wasn't through our programs, right? So it's like two people living in two different worlds and we're bringing them together. So yeah, we have that um, mentorship trail, uh, mountain biking program going on. We also have mentorship and trail running as well. So like we really try to ensure that what we're doing is sustainable and it's giving people the tools and the mechanism to be able to like pursue the sport beyond us. Because Color the Trails, the way we see it is our goal is to give people the tools and knowledge and education to be able to pursue the sport by themselves. Like so that they're not always dependent on us to be able to do everything, you know? Um, and for me, because I said international deep international development. I know a lot about dependency theory. So I try to stay away from that kind of dependency, but rather being like, hey, this is a tool. We're here to support you, but then you're going to graduate. You've been able to do that. And then you're also going to try to pass a pay it forward to our community. Um, and I think we all need to fund mentors or find people in our support, in our, um, to support us in our work. And, um, and I think the snow sport industry needs to do a little bit better to like be able to mentor and support people to get into the space. Um, but we're just trying, we're just working with whoever is willing to work with us um, to make it possible. But yeah, that's kind of like our mentorship program. It's very relational, it's very community driven and it's very accountability based. So like if you're gonna join a mentorship program, you're also accountable to put effort to meet with your mentor. It's not on a mentor to reach out to you, it's on you, the individual, to reach out to your mentor, to go ski together, to go um, ride together, or for you to come to our events and like participate fully as a community um, because we do everything at a very affordable rate. That is so cool. You're taking on two of the most expensive sports out there and <clears throat> the financial barrier to entry is huge, obviously for everybody. Yeah. So it's so cool that you're able to to, to make that available. I think uh, Whistler's day ticket this year is almost $300. So if you can put together these uh, never ever programs, that's just, that's mm -hmm. very, very cool. Yeah. 
No, I say I think Whistler, because we've been working with them for a while, see so much value on Call of the Trails. So I think that's why they're also really trying and working with us through their Epic Promise program. Um, because our program is very unique in some ways and our community is also very unique. So it's not just us um, being able to um, provide those, um, those things. It's being able to work with them in a way to support them also to be diverse. So you have an event coming up, uh, registration is closed now, but it's coming up this winter called Color the Slopes, which is the uh, the second uh, annual Color the Slopes, and that's happening in Revelstoke. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that, because there's some pretty interesting things going on, including um, guided backcountry skiing and mm -hmm. mountain snowmobiling. Yeah, so we're really excited. Um, we ran Color the Slopes Summit for the first time last year after I pitched the idea to Tourism Revelstoke. And it was very successful, super excited, and it went very smoothly. You know, we learned a lot and we brought about 60 BIPOC from across U.S. and Canada to come and ski um, in Ravi. Um, so then we're con it's a continuation of that summit. Um, this year is called the Slopes 2.0. And, um, and our goal, honestly, is to bring joy to the slope and to create again i say space for bipoc folks who come and ski together because a lot of feedbacks that i was getting from community or even like when we post on our social media a lot of bipoc say i've never skied or snowboard with another bipoc um you know because oftentimes they feel isolated or they're doing a sport because they live in a very predominantly white um, town or their friends are just mainly white who are doing um, all these art, you know, um, ski things. So for them, that's that's their space that they're used to skiing. Um, but with us um, and Color the Slopes, we just kind of offer that to them. Um, so yeah, it, it, it gives us that really cool opportunity to come together, ski, be in community with one another. And um, yeah, and just like bring joy to the slopes. That's fantastic. And so can you talk a little bit about some of the backcountry things that you've got offered? It looks like you have an opportunity for folks to go uh, backcountry skiing. And it seems like you have the, you've divided it into people that have never tried it before and then people that have done it before so they can maybe uh, go a little bit further or maybe learn some skills more appropriate for their, their skill level there. Yeah. So the really cool thing about Color the Slope is it's, it's designed for anywhere beginner to like experience skier because we wanted to create a, a space for everybody at where they're at. So the first day we usually just do um, a group lesson, which everybody comes, gets a group lesson. I don't care how experienced you are. I think we always have something great to learn. Um, so we do a group lesson and that's broken off again from very beginner who've never like ever, you know, skied or snowboard to um, people who've also have been skiing for a long time by just improving their skills. And then the second day is broken up into other people can continue to ski or snowboard, or they can do snowshoeing. And then we have backcountry um, back skiing as well on the resort. So some folks are gonna go and do a touring thing over there. And then we also have snowmobiling. So um, yeah, so that's gonna be really epic. And I think it's just an opportunity again to go experience the backcountry again as a community, but with guides um, who can then further teach about, you know, you know, as you're moving through the terrain, you know, how to watch for avalanche or, you know, where's the safe zone and stuff like that. So for us, it's just like continuously we work to 
always continue to enhance education around snow safety. And um, so by working with guides, we're always very thankful because I think they're just so knowledgeable um, and continue to pass that knowledge because I feel like for a lot of us in the BIPOC community, we love touring, but we probably don't get out enough because there's a lot of fear and intimidation of being in the backcountry. So a lot of people tend to stick it very safe. Um, and, you know, and especially being in BC, um, especially like the Vancouver area in the past, like two years, the snowpack hasn't been that really great. So there's also a lot of fear of like, you know, um, you know, being injured and hurt and just, you know, what you're reading with search and rescue and everything. So uh, for us, it's just like always trying to do a guided experience when we do anything in the backcountry, just because I think there's still a lot of confidence needs to be built and a lot of knowledge that needs to be shared. So that's why we always like really work with our guides and um, be able to put this kind of program forward. And we also have amazing speakers who are coming and speaking on various topics. I just told them the theme. So they are gonna prepare their own presentations and come and kind of share about what um, you know what the outdoors looks for them. You know, we have somebody like uh, Marty Fuller who's written on a few like you know there's a great article that she wrote on ski bomb um, and how kind of elitist it is. <laughs> you can try to find that article. I think it was on the Outside Magazine. Um, I'm not sure. So if you just kind of look, hurry up, you will be able to come up an amazing writer, speaker and advocate. Um, we have Karima Batts, who is, um, is an um, founder of Adaptive Climbing Group out of the U.S., who consults a lot with the Olympic Committee and just like everybody everywhere in the world on how to make adaptive um, sport more accessible um, to to folks as well. And then, you know, we have Benjamin Alexander, who's just, you know, who's like, hey, I'm gonna race skiing, never done it. And just like, does it. Like, yeah, she makes it to the Olympics, which is insane, and you know. Um, Five years after starting skiing for the first time, he made it to the Olympics. Is yeah, amazing. exactly. As the first so, uh, alpine ski racer from Jamaica. Yeah, it's, 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 it's amazing. And to just kind of see that human determination and, um, so for me, I'm just like really, really excited for that as well, just to kind of be in community and speak to people that look like us who are in this space, who are making the world a little bit better and making the outdoor a little bit more accessible. It just uh, it makes me think so many times about like how many people that haven't had the opportunity to get exposed to this that could have really taken it and run with it. And you look at a guy like Benjamin Alexander that like if you know, he was a DJ and he had a whole other career before he started skiing. But if he hadn't just sort of fallen in love with skiing sort of by accident, you know, he would have never made the Olympics as Jamaica's first alpine ski racer. Like it's just sort of like a, a chance encounter. And, and then you look at, uh, I always look at a guy like Zeb Powell in the States. I mean, he's basically by virtue of growing up around snow became this incredibly gifted snowboarder, like potentially the best ever, I think, in terms of his avenue of doing these crazy wild tricks that have never been done before. And and that's building this whole movement of other like incredibly athletic people taking taking their skills to, to snow that might not have had that opportunity otherwise had they not seen them themselves represented in that space. So it's very I think it's cool. I think it's gonna benefit everybody in the Yeah, in the like I think world too, right? Yeah, no, I think it's like really beautiful because for me I encounter snow also by ch by chance and now I'm running programs where, you know, 
like last year we had over 300 people participate in our ski programs um you know who like whether it's their first time or more advanced like you know that's 300 people that color the trails has impacted and our goal is to be able to spread our ski program throughout canada but it's also very difficult because certain resorts are super res resistant to supporting um, this initiative. They're not, they don't want to put any effort and some are very keen. They're like, yes, we've been looking for something like this. We didn't want to do it on our own because that comes off as tokenistic. It's really great. We want to partner up with Call of the Trails. So for me, I think that, you know, there's a lot of opportunity. So if you're listening and you work at a resort, feel free to reach out to us. We're like still trying to figure, find a resort in Alberta um and in montreal or even in toronto so there's i think there's a lot of opportunities there but um like you know i've met zeb and zeb is an incredible person um you know and he's really changing the scene of snowboarding but not just that but he's also giving back into community and uplifting community and i think that's like the most beautiful aspect about the sport is it doesn't have to be expensive, <laughs> you know? That's we make so it true. expensive because I think the goal is to make it very exclusive, but it doesn't. And the fact that I've found ways to make it accessible for people and then give people that tool and knowledge for them to then decide for themselves if they wanna save their little disposable income that they have to put towards skiing or snowboarding, that's up to them. But we can't, you know, we can't make it automatically like very expensive to enter because by doing that, we're, we're hindering a lot of Zap Powell's, you know, Alexandra's from entering these spaces, right? So I think we can definitely, as an industry, make it somewhat affordable for people to be able to enter and be able to see what can come out of it. So I think investing in people, investing in grassroots communities like Color the Trails, I think it's like the best way to kind of move forward. Um, but it all, honestly, with each resort, it all depends on the individual. Some people are great, really like, let's get this done. Other people are just not interested at all because sadly enough, I feel like the whole diversity equity thing that came out of 2020, I, for me, I just think it was a scam. People, it was a trend. People were just like so quick to be like, we're doing DEI, but nobody really wanted to financially contribute into diversity and equity. And I feel like companies that were more silent doing B, um, BLM are the one doing the most work. And those who were so quick to put up uh, a black square have fallen silent and like have kind of cut all their bi um, diversity initiatives. So I just think it's like very interesting to see like this was a trend and a lot of people didn't mean about diversity and inclusion and only a few are actually keeping their words and trying their best. And it's not perfect. There's a lot of missteps along the way, but I think that willingness to constantly make mistake and but continuously learn from that mistake and improve, I think that's the only way forward. When you look back over the last um, five or six years that you've been running Color of the Trails, have there been some standout kind of experiences or sort of testimonials that you've had from people that have taken part because surely you've seen a lot of light bulbs go off and people fall in love with activities that they've never tried before yeah i mean there's a lot i think the testament is just like you know when i open social media i see our mentees were not traveling in the u.s to go bike in like you know moab or sedona and all this and because it's the skills that they've acquired through color the trails i think that is a testament in itself um for me, I think, you know, one thing that always sticks out is that uh, what's really cool about Color the Trails is we give 
adults the opportunity to try these sports. And even if they don't like it, they then put their next generation, like, you know, their niece, nephews, or their kids into the sport because they're like, I personally don't like it, but I see the value of this sport and I'm going to invest my kid to be in this space or like the kids, you know, in my life to be in this space. So for me, that's really showing this multicultural, multi-generational thing that's been passed down. And it's a knowledge that I think a lot of our community lacked. Um, and for me also, like a lot of people talk about how being with Color the Trails has um, really helped them reclaim nature uh, for themselves because for them, they just didn't see themselves in that space. Whether it's like backpacking, going camping for the first time, um, we hear folks who come for the first time, learn the skills, and then the next they're sending us message, oh, I took my whole family camping for the first time. And they loved it, you know? Um, you know, because I think a lot of times people are afraid around bear safety. So like we do a lot of training about bears and food and how to store food properly. So people then have that confidence and being like, okay, this is what I need. I need bear spray. I need that. I have to be, you know, so for me, it's just like that knowledge that we're sharing with our community is going not beyond our community. It's not infiltrating families. Um, and and for me, I think that's like a beautiful testament of Color the Trails and the work that we do. There's so many testimony. There's so many impact that, you know, we always release our impact report with some testimonial here and there. And it's just like really beautiful to see that people really see themselves in this space now or starting to see themselves in this space and how they themselves are also investing in this space. When you talk about seeing um, people seeing themselves in this space, you've also been involved in a lot of media, which has been really powerful and creative and actually beautifully shot everything, the whole package. And I think my favorite has been I Am Because You Are, such a cool story. It's so neat to see, you know, six women going mountaineering for the first time in one of my favorite places, the Bugaboos. Can you talk a bit about that experience? Because that, that looked amazing. Yeah. So honestly, like I'm a kind of individual that I'm always like, when somebody invites me into a space, I'm like, I don't want to go by myself. I was like, no, we need to make this a group thing. I want other people to experience it. So, um, so yeah, I had this, you know, we got invited to go to the Bugaboos. And for us, I wanted to bring a group of folks who may have some experience but not as much experience to see what it takes to be a mountaineering because i think there's a lot of curiosity around mountaineering in our community but the barrier to entry in that space is so high and it's so expensive so it's kind of like how do we gain that skill set um how do we traverse snow how do we traverse like ice and like all these different things so yeah so we had gathered six BIPOC folks to go out to the bagaboos and that was a magical experience it ended up being the year where the snow melt was very late. So we're in July and there's still like insane amount of snow out there. Um, so that was like really, um, that was really beautiful. It was a very beautiful moment as a community to do this together and to, for some of us to summit, you know, our first, to do our first summit, others like also understanding that their bodies were tired and they just didn't have the capacity for that, which was totally okay because this was a trip where it wasn't about conquering anything. It was about how do we move through this big mountain range as a community together and supporting to each other. Um, yeah, so we had that film shown at the Vancouver um, Film Festival. Um, right now it's showing at the Kendall Film Festival um, in, uh, I think, November 16th. Um, it's kind of making its around. Eventually it will probably be available online after we finish going through the film tour. But um, for me, 
that trip then inspired us to now be able to offer a mountaineering course every year. Um, so this past summer, we did another mountaineering course um, up in um, in um, in Alberta. And that was like really, again, very magical. This time around, we were able to do some Glacier Traverse, but the smoke came in. We couldn't really get our views, but it was still a really beautiful experience. Now we know how to, like even as a CTT leadership team was there as well, now all of us know how to traverse glaciers. So now we're like, oh, it's not as intimidating as it is. It's just more about watching where we're going, being communicative, being able to acquire this, you know, um, crevasse self-rescue. So which I'm looking into, like, how do we be able to run that clinic so that we know how to self, -re you know, crevasse rescue and stuff like that. So for me, all these things just open up opportunity to be able to bring more people in and to educate more people in to then build more confidence so they can pursue and be in that space, right? Because once you have all these skill set, you don't always need a guide. Now you can traverse safely because you've we've taken the clinic, you've taken the skill set, you're able to do this independently with a friend that you trust. So um, for us, we're just kind of trying to break those barriers to make things that seems impossible or inaccessible to be more accessible. That's fantastic. Well, for an episode about uh, mentorship and building community, I don't know if I could have spoken with anybody better. So thank you, Judy, for taking the time to speak with me. I, I love your enthusiasm and everything that you're doing. You're really making it happen when you think about doing a hike with one other person, you know, in 2017, and then now you've got 300 people at Color the Slopes and everything else. It's, it's amazing. It's good work and it's important. So thanks for what you do and thanks for taking the time to have a chat with me this no, morning. Thank you so much. Yeah. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to kind of share more about Color the Trails and all of the very different programs that we run. And hopefully, you know, this has been beneficial to the listeners as well who will be listening to this and we can all take something and learn from it. As you heard, Judy is a passionate force of nature, and she has done some pretty amazing work towards opening doors and creating opportunities for people who don't see themselves represented by the traditional outdoor media. I have to say her comment about the culture of no friends on a powder day being selfish and exclusionary was pretty powerful. I honestly had never considered that before, but you know what? It makes total sense. As someone who spends a fair bit of time skiing with my kids, I can tell you it is so awesome to see someone you love absolutely shred powder for the first time. Maybe you don't have kids, but I bet you have a friend who would be fired up to ski their first powder turns with you and would truly appreciate the patience and pointers. There are other organizations out there providing opportunities for BIPOC folks to get involved with snow and ice. Check out the amazing Ilsa crew on Instagram. They have been spreading stoke amongst Indigenous kids here in BC for years. Shout out also to Zeb Powell for his Hoods to Woods Foundation. There is also the Mount Washington Valley Ice Festival in New Hampshire who provide a ton of learning opportunities for people of all backgrounds. A final shout out to the amazing Phil Henderson of Full Circle Expeditions, who led the first all-black expedition up Everest. Phil has been walking the walk long before most people were talking the talk. One definition of community is a group of individuals who share common geographic, social, or cultural characteristics and are bound by a sense of belonging and mutual interdependence. Well, if we depend on each other, then bringing each other up, supporting each other, and creating opportunities for new folks to experience the snowy places that we love is a surefire way to build our community. Well, we sure covered some ground in this episode. Thank you for sticking around until the end. 
I'd like to part with a comment from Brendan Cronin, an Avalanche Pro featured in episode 4.14. He said, trying to diversify your mentors is important. Simply because you've learned from one person does not make their thoughts and processes the only way. This podcast is all about sharing stories, knowledge, and news. So if you have suggestions or questions for future episodes, please contact us. You can do that on our website at www.theavalanchehour.com, where you can also find all our past episodes. You can also reach out at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, tell a friend and please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts really help spread the show. If you want to help support the podcast, there's a new donate button on theavalanchehour.com. Thank you to everyone who has supported the show so far. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Thanks, Mike. Music for this episode was written and performed by my friend and friend of the podcast, Gravy. Thanks, Gravy, for the tunes. You can hear more of Gravy's tunes at gravy.tunes on Instagram and find his album on Bandcamp. If you want to see Gravy shred deep pow, then check out his edits on Instagram or YouTube. This episode was produced by Cameron Griffin. Thanks, Cam. Are you in need of some new gloves, goggles, or socks? Go check out gordini.com and use the code THEAVALANCHEHOUR10 to get 10% off and free shipping on your next order. Are you an industry pro? Check out Gordini products on Expert Voice. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there.